I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. This episode contains distressing themes, profanity, and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. They Walk Among Us is part of the Acast Creator Network. The justice system is designed to protect and serve all members of society equally regardless of race, social status, or background. However, it is not infallible. One of the most egregious examples in which the justice system has failed is the wrongful execution of the innocent. In 1952, Cardiff was a bustling industrial hub, a Welsh city that was in the midst of post-war construction. Cardiff docks were the main economic driver, and they welcomed ships from all across the globe, trading goods and raw materials. This trade led to the city quickly becoming a hub of multiculturalism. In particular, it became home to many Somali sailors who had sought new pastures. That same year, one of those sailors would find himself at the centre of a murder investigation that would highlight the dangers of a biased justice system. Welcome to Season 8, Episode 7 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. Lily Volpert was a 41-year-old who owned an outfitters on Butte Street by Cardiff Docks. Her store was a friendly place for sailors who travelled in and out of the docks at all hours, day or night. 
Lily was single with no children. Her business was her focus. Something she was proud of. She worked hard and did everything to ensure its success. The store was more than just a source of income. It was also a home. Lily lived at the back of the property with her family, consisting of her sister Doris and her ten-year-old niece Ruth. Despite her friendly nature, Lily liked to keep to herself. However, socialising on a professional level was part of the job. She worked long hours, ensuring that each and every customer was tended to, even if they rang the doorbell long past closing time. That said, in February 1952, there was a shift and Lily became more cautious. There had been two recent break-in attempts that had left her feeling shaken. As a security measure, Lily only allowed familiar faces into the store after dark. The morning of Thursday, March 6th, 1952, started like any other day. Lily spent the afternoon tending to people who visited the shop, selling them cigarette stationery and clothing. As the sun began to set at around 8pm, two customers, Mary Tolly and Margaret Bush, approached the counter to purchase some items before leaving. Shortly thereafter, following a long day, Lily closed the store and shuffled to the back room for dinner. Her mother, Fanny, was joining Lily's sister, Doris, and her niece, Ruth, who had set the table. Just as Lily was about to sit down to eat, the doorbell rang. Reluctantly, she got up, went to the front of the shop, and upon witnessing a man standing outside, Lily unlocked the door. Both Fanny and Doris had also got up to check on the customer, who they described as a black man with a full face. Not wanting to let their dinner go cold, Lily's family returned to eating their meal as Lily tended to the customer. Fifteen minutes passed, and William Archibald stopped by the store to purchase some cigarettes. He pushed open the front door only to find the business empty, but the light switched on. He approached the counter thinking that Lily was momentarily in the back room or retrieving stock. As he drew closer, his eyes were drawn to something on the floor. It was Lily. She lay crumpled in a puddle of blood. William ran from the store to nearby Butte Street Police Station to report his awful discovery. Detectives arrived at the scene, and the investigation into the murder was led by Assistant Chief Constable Thomas. Statements were taken from Lily Volpert's family as well as the customer who discovered her body. Despite the fact Lily had been attacked just feet away from her loved ones, surprisingly no one heard a thing. 
Lily's family informed detectives about the man they had seen outside the shop around 15 minutes before her body was found. As statements were being taken, Lily's remains were transported to the pathological department of the Welsh School of Medicine in Cardiff. A post-mortem was performed by Gerald Tudor, who found that Lily had sustained four injuries to her neck by a sharp instrument, possibly a razor. There was one nine-centimetre wound that extended from the front to the back of Lily's throat, severing her jugular vein. The pathologist reported that Lily's death was almost instantaneous, when she was most likely taken by surprise and attacked from behind. After obtaining statements, detectives searched Lily Volpert's business to try and establish whether anything had been stolen. It was believed robbery was the most likely motive considering the recent break-in attempts. As Lily's family confirmed that she only allowed people she knew into the store at night, detectives theorised the killer was known to Lily and had gained entry to the store with her permission. They suspected the individual was a repeat customer, and Lily felt comfortable in their presence. It would subsequently be discovered that at least £100 had been stolen. From a drawer in the shop, investigators also recovered some partially burned pound notes wrapped in a daily newspaper dated January 15th. Nobody in Lily's family could say where they came from, only adding to the mystery. The police continued examining the crime scene and soon discovered bloodstains on the shop's deadbolt. This led them to theorise that once inside the shop, the killer locked the door and then unlocked it after he killed Lily. Throughout the night, detectives scoured the dock area with a particular focus on the lodging houses nearby, which were predominantly used by sailors. In their search, the police honed in on men who were black, hoping to find potential clues. By the morning, they got their first lead. At around 7.10am, Mr Gibbs, a road sweeper, was in a lane between St Mary's School and the Central Boys Club on Butte Terrace. This was around three quarters of a mile north of Butte Street. While there, he said he saw a pair of chocolate-coloured trousers that had bloodstains on the legs. Nearby, Mr Gibbs found a light blue shirt with bloodstains at chest level, a dark blue jacket that was also stained, a waistcoat of light material, and a thin brown belt. The road sweeper walked to the nearest shop and told a female cashier about the discovery. She replied, Well, tell a policeman. Mr Gibbs explained that he misheard the woman and thought she said, I'll tell a policeman. He decided to continue working until 11.15am when he mentioned the discovery to a detective he bumped into on the street. 
when he directed them to the items, all he could find was the belt. The rest had vanished. The public were made aware of the missing items and asked if anybody had collected them to notify the authorities immediately. As detectives continued searching for the missing items of clothing, they announced they were looking for the customer that Lily's family had seen shortly before her body was found. While Lily's loved ones all described him as a very tall black man, estimated to be over six feet, puzzlingly detectives said they were looking for a 30-year-old man who was five feet nine inches tall. In an effort to trace the person of interest or anybody else who could offer any insight into the murder, detectives put out an all-stations call to police forces throughout South Wales, asking them to be on the lookout for a man who matched this description. Meanwhile, Lily Volpert's family put forward a reward of £200 for information leading to the conviction of her killer. £200 in 1952 is approximately £7,500 today, which was a fine incentive for someone to come forward if they were harbouring information. When investigators were interviewing men who lived in the area, they zoned in on a 28-year-old named Mahmoud Hussein Matan. Mahmoud was Somalian with a noticeably thin face, which did not match the family's description of the man seen at the store shortly before Lily was attacked. While searching his room at the lodging house, inside Mahmoud's brown jacket, officers came across a green-handled razor with a piece of the blade missing. Mahmoud said to them, I used to shave with it. It broke a long time ago. Detectives were not buying his story. Since Lily Volpert's murder had been ruthless, they theorised that the blade could have broken in the attack. Mahmoud denied outright that he had killed Lily and provided detectives with an alibi. He said that from 4.30pm until 7.30pm he had been at the cinema. Afterwards he visited his mother-in-law's home on Bridge Street and then returned to the lodging house where he lived. Mahmoud Hussein Matan was born in Somalia in 1923. He worked as a merchant seaman and eventually found himself in Tiger Bay around Cardiff Docks, where he built a life. His wife Laura would recount the first time they met, saying, This skinny black man came up to me. He was very polite. Mahmoud asked, Can I speak to you? And Laura agreed. He then said to her, I think you very nice girl. I like to take you to the pictures. Sadly, as was common during that time, Laura came from a family with a deeply ingrained racial bias. 
despite this, Laura and Mahmoud were smitten. They caught ship crossed an invisible line, and in 1948 they were married, to the disappointment of Laura's family who went so far as to boycott the wedding. As a multicultural couple, they suffered racial abuse from the community, and Laura was cruelly called a black man's whore. She later recalled, If Mahmoud and I had been living in biblical times, we would have been stoned to death. No landlord was willing to accommodate them as a couple, so instead of living together, Laura stayed with her mother on Bridge Street while Mahmoud lived in a nearby lodging house. People told them it was not right for a black man to marry a white woman, but the couple tried their best not to let the abuse get to them. Throughout their marriage, they had three children, David, Omar and Mervyn. Mahmoud dreamed of sending them all to college to provide them with a better upbringing than his own. Laura said of her husband, Mahmoud was bloody lovely. He was the best thing that happened to me in my life. Detectives were laser-focused on Mahmoud Matan as the lead suspect in Lily Volpert's murder. In an effort to connect him to the crime scene, they decided to again question Mary Tolley and Margaret Bush, the two customers who had been in the store that night. They were shown a photograph of Mahmoud and said they recognised him, but both were adamant they had not seen him in around a month. Detectives were unsatisfied with their responses and decided to interview them again. Margaret stuck to the same story. She had not seen a man inside the store that night. However, Mary changed her account. She now said she had seen a black man with a moustache inside the store, but said that he had then left. Despite the lack of physical evidence connecting Mahmoud Matan to the murder of Lily Volpert, Mary's comments were enough for detectives to name Mahmoud as a suspect. He was arrested on March 11th, and Lily's family were presented with a photograph of Mahmoud. None of them could identify him as the full-faced man they had seen at the store in the moments before Lily was attacked but this did not deter detectives. Investigators were relentless in their pursuit of Mahmoud, and in the wake of his arrest they built their entire case around him, rather than following where the evidence might lead. They were particularly interested in retracing his movements on the night Lily was killed, so they returned to the lodging house where he was living. There they spoke with the owner, Ernest Leonard Harrison. He told them that Mahmoud had returned to the lodging house on the night of the murder at some point between 8.30 and 9pm. Ernest described Mahmoud as being in a hypnotic state, not interested in joining in the conversation about racing and football. 
the owner of the lodging house said that this was very out of character, as Mahmoud was usually a chatty man. According to Ernest Harrison, the next day Mahmoud accused another lodger, Lloyd Williams, of killing that woman. Ernest recalled, I told Matan it was a funny thing for one man to attack Miss Volpert because she was a heavily built woman. Ernest claimed that Mahmoud then, quote, put his arm around his own neck and drew his right arm across his throat to demonstrate how it might have been done. Detectives then heard from a woman named May Gray who owned a second-hand clothing shop on Bridge Street. She described how at some point between 8.30pm and 8.50pm on March 6th, a man who she said was black came into her store and said he wanted some clothing. He opened his wallet to show her a roll of notes that May estimated to be around £100. The man appeared to be excited, as if he had been running. May was adamant that the person she served that night was Mahmoud Matan. She also told detectives that this wasn't the first time she had encountered him. May explained that around ten months earlier, Mahmoud had come into her store and asked for a suit. He offered her ten shillings, but when she refused... He became angry and pulled out a knife. Furthermore, a witness originally from Jamaica named Harold Cover then came forward and reported that he was walking past Lily's store around the same time as the murder. He said he had seen two Somali men outside. One was walking out of the porch while the other stood near the door. Harold believed that the first man was Mahmoud Matan. All detectives were collecting statements. Forensic experts examined the brown shoes Mahmoud was wearing at the time of his arrest. It was concluded that although nothing could be seen with the naked eye, there were 87 tiny bloodstains on the right shoe and 18 blood specks on the left. This seemed to be the evidence investigators needed was on March 16th, 1952. Mahmoud Matan appeared in court where he was charged with Lily Volpert's murder. Mahmoud was asked during the brief court hearing whether he needed a solicitor to defend him. He responded, Defend me for what? I don't want anything and I don't care about anything. You can't get me for what I have not done. The chairman of the bench, Mr. Alex Johnson, replied, We are only trying to help you. To which Mahmoud said, I don't want help from anybody. The defendant was subsequently granted legal aid and was remanded into custody. The courtroom was packed with spectators on March 26th when Mahmoud returned to court. 
Court Inspector Calloway announced during the hearing that the case had been sent to the Director of Public Prosecutions. A preliminary hearing began on April 16th, during which time it was ultimately decided that there was enough evidence against Mahmoud Matan for him to stand trial for Lily Volpert's murder. After the announcement, Mahmoud stood up and pleaded his innocence to the judge and the entire court. He exclaimed, All I want to say is I am not guilty. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This episode of They Walk Among Us is brought to you in association with Centair. Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing? That's where Centair comes in. With over three decades of experience, Centair leads the scent marketing industry, scenting resorts, retail outlets, event spaces and more, partnering with major brands like Westin Hotels and Snap Fitness. Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand. And now Centair is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. Visit Centair.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Centair diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours. And the Centair app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safer families and EcoVad is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to Centair.com and using promo code AMONGUS for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order at Centair.com. The murder trial began on July 22nd at Glamorgan Assizes. 
the prosecution brought various eyewitnesses to the stand, including Mary Tolley and Harold Cover, both of whom identified Mahmoud Matan as the man they saw at Lily's store that night. Interestingly, they all described Mahmoud as having a moustache, despite the fact he did not have one at the time. May Gray also testified, maintaining that she saw Mahmoud in her shop later that night with a large amount of cash. Mahmoud's defence team did their best to suggest that May was lying and was motivated by the financial reward for information. She had only come forward with claims that Mahmoud came to her shop a week after the murder when the reward was announced. Focus then turned to Mahmoud's shoes, which had been analysed following his arrest. Prosecutor Edmund Davis contended that they were speckled with blood, but Mahmoud claimed he was not wearing that pair on the day of the murder and he did not know how blood came to be on them. He also argued that when the shoes were seized by detectives, they were cleaner than when they were presented at trial. Furthermore, the shoes had come from a salvage dump, and there was no direct evidence to prove that the stains were Lily's blood. The only witness that Mahmoud's defence team called was the defendant himself, who repeated what he had previously told detectives. He had been at the cinema until 7.30pm and then visited his mother-in-law before returning to his lodgings. He denied ever being at May Gray's shop that night or carrying a knife or a razor. His testimony was hampered by the fact that Mahmoud spoke broken English and a translator was not made available. Following two days of testimony, the trial approached its conclusion. During closing remarks, Mahmoud Matan's counsel Thomas Rhys Roberts described his client as a, quote, half-child of nature and a semi-civilised savage. The barrister then proceeded to say that the defence did not rely on anything that Mahmoud had said. Rhys Roberts asked the jury to dismiss his client's evidence, including the series of untruths and lies that he might have told. Instead, the barrister argued that the case against his client was based on circumstantial evidence and asked the jury not to draw too many inferences. Mahmoud's counsel also reminded jurors that the man seen outside Lily's shop on the night of her murder had a moustache, but Mahmoud did not. He then pointed out the lack of physical evidence against his client, including the fact that no bloodstains were found on any of his clothes. Prosecutor Edmund Davis kept his closing argument short. In reference to the account provided by Harold Cover, who claimed he was walking past Lily's store when he saw two Somali men outside, one of whom he believed was Mahmoud, Davis simply remarked, 
If you believe what Kovas says, then you must find this man guilty of murder. After deliberating for one hour and 35 minutes, the jury reached a verdict. They found Mahmoud Hussein Matan guilty of Lily Volpert's murder. After the judge put on his black cap, Mahmoud was sentenced to death. Shortly after the sentence was handed down, Thomas Rhys Roberts launched an appeal on behalf of his client. Rhys Roberts felt the jury's verdict was, quote, perverse. He also argued that Judge Mr Justice Ormerod had allowed prejudicial evidence to be admitted. However, on August 19th, the appeal was dismissed. Mahmoud Matan's fate was sealed, and his execution date was scheduled for September 3rd, 1952. In the days leading up to the execution, Mahmoud made a plea for clemency, but his request was rejected by the then Home Secretary Sir David Maxwell Fife. It was concluded there were insufficient grounds to recommend any interference with the due course of law. On the morning of September 3rd, a small group of people gathered outside Cardiff Prison. There was a sombre atmosphere. Mahmoud, who had always professed his innocence, was led to the gallows where a noose was placed around his neck. Moments later, the trap door sprung open, sending Mahmoud to his death. In the aftermath of Mahmoud Matan's execution, his widow Laura became a target within the community. Neighbours hurled insults and her children were pelted with stones. She recalled, I felt so alone. Suddenly I was left with three young children and had no support from anywhere. Years passed, and the memory of Mahmoud Matan's fate almost faded into obscurity as life on the docks in Cardiff returned to normal. However, 17 years later in June 1969, an opportunity to revisit the case presented itself when one of the key witnesses in Mahmoud's trial, Harold Cover, was convicted of attempted murder. On May 6th, he was sentenced to life after cutting his 18-year-old daughter's throat. The weapon he had used was a razor. The Somali community leader in Tiger Bay reached out to Cardiff MP Edward Rowlands, and a campaign to reopen Mahmoud's case began. Rowlands wrote to the Home Secretary, who was then James Callaghan, 
and urged a re-examination of Cova's evidence and of the verdict. Meanwhile, David Wickham, writing for the People newspaper, began looking into the possibility of a miscarriage of justice. During his investigation, he tracked down several witnesses, including Margaret Bush. She told Wickham that she had never seen a man inside Lily's store that night, even though her fellow customer Mary Tolly claimed she had. Margaret also revealed publicly for the very first time that she did see Mahmoud that night at about 8.15 on Bridge Street. This was around the same time the murder occurred on Butte Street, over a mile and a half away. When she passed him, she said hello, and he said hello back. She told David Wickham, he could not have got to the shop and committed the murder. He was innocent. Margaret Bush explained that when she testified during the preliminary hearing and at the trial, she was only asked about the time she left the store with Mary. She was not allowed to testify about seeing Mahmoud at 8.15pm. David Wickham attempted to track down Mary Tolly but struggled to find her. He was also unable to speak with May Gray, the other shop owner, as she had since passed away. He did, however, converse with Susan Smith, Harold Cover's wife of 20 years. She told Wickham that after Cover came forward with his reported sighting of Mahmoud Matan at Lily's store, he received £100 of the reward fund. Another £100 went to May Gray. Susan confided to reporter David Wickham that in her eyes, her husband was a good father to her children, but Harold Cover was a very violent man. In 1949, Cover was arrested after slashing a Somali man with broken glass. Susan recalled, It was a fight over a girl, and I don't think anything happened to Harry as a result. Susan also recollected another incident sometime after Lily Volpert's murder. Cover got into a fight with a soldier and cut his throat with broken glass. Before Cover had attempted to kill one of his daughters in May 1969, he had hit someone else over the head with a metal pipe. For this violent incident, he was fined £25 for causing grievous bodily harm. Susan Smith told David Wickham precisely what happened during the attack that almost cost their 18-year-old daughter her life. An argument had erupted between Harold Cover and their daughter, and he went upstairs to speak to her. Susan recalled, Harry went to help her and came down alone. He said to me very quietly, It's all over. I replied, What, is she ready to go? He then said, No, she's dead. 
Susan rushed up the stairs to find their daughter lying in a puddle of blood with a wound to her throat. Despite the additional evidence collected by David Wickham, Home Secretary James Callahan announced that he had initiated police inquiries. However, added that there were no new grounds to justify reopening the case. Journalist David Wickham remained determined in his search for the truth. He was eventually able to track down Mary Bush at her home in Cardiff. He implored the Home Secretary to reach out to Mary and interview her about her testimony but his pleas were rebuffed. Decades passed, and in 1994, Mahmoud's widow Laura embarked on a mission to clear Mahmoud's name so that he could be buried on consecrated ground. Mahmoud, who was the last person to be hanged in Wales, had been buried at Cardiff Prison. For over 40 years, his family had been prohibited from visiting his grave. However, the prison governor, Niall Clifford, sympathised with Laura's plight and decided to grant her permission. He stated, We were glad to be able to do something to help her as she has been through so much in her life. When Laura and her son Philip from a later relationship visited the grave for the first time, they laid down a single red rose and a bouquet of flowers with a picture of Mahmoud's three boys tucked in sight. Laura said, It's a relief to see Mahmoud resting so peacefully. It has strengthened my resolve. It was a bittersweet moment for the family. In the aftermath of Mahmoud's arrest, Laura had burned her wedding pictures. The only photographs she had of Mahmoud were his mugshot and his identification photograph. These two pictures stand in contrast to one another. In one, Mahmoud looks dishevelled and confused. His face is etched with worry and fear of the unknown. In the other, he appears to be dignified and proud, wearing a smart suit with a slight smile on his face. Laura's son Philip had become an unwavering source of support for his mother and had spent months poring over old records. He wrote over 200 letters to try and enlist the help of MPs, councillors and the community in an effort to clear Mahmoud Matan's name, a man who had been put to death around four years before Philip was born. He stated, It has taken over my life. My work is suffering. But the more I read, the more I truly believe we have a case. In September 1994, MP Rodri Morgan wrote to Home Secretary Michael Howard and asked for a posthumous pardon for Mahmoud. Rodri Morgan stated, 
It does seem that the Home Office should exercise whatever discretion it has to reopen the case and consider whether Mr Matan should now be pardoned. The MP described how when he read that Mahmoud's defence counsel had referred to his client as a semi-civilised savage and a half-child of nature, it made him wonder whether Somali seamen in Cardiff in the 1950s were given a, quote, fair crack of the whip, or whether they were used to assist in the solution of otherwise insoluble crimes. The following year, the Home Office revealed that papers relating to Mahmoud's case had been burned by mistake. A spokesperson explained that it was not normal practice, and it appeared to have happened in error. Despite this development, it was finally announced that the case was being re-examined by the Home Office to decide whether an appeal could go ahead, only for the authorities to claim that the rest of the case files had been thrown out. This frustrating revelation was followed a year later, when it was discovered that this was not the case at all, and the files were eventually tracked down. The paperwork was finally handed over to Mahmoud Matan's family after MP Rodri Morgan raised the matter in Parliament. In June 1996, Mahmoud's family made an emotional plea to Home Secretary Michael Howard to allow the exhumation of his body so that Mahmoud could be buried in a churchyard. Meanwhile, another eyewitness came forward. A woman who was 12 years old at the time of the murder reported that she was three doors down from Lily's store that night when she saw a man, whom she described as black with a moustache, ring the bell to the store. She had come forward at the time of the murder and attended an identity parade which included Mahmoud. She recalled, I looked at him. I stood right in front of him. I said, that's not him. This evidence was ignored by detectives at the time, much like Lily's family's evidence was ignored because it did not align with the theory that Mahmoud was the killer. In September 1996... Mahmoud's family received the news they had been waiting for for four decades. They were granted permission to exhume his body so he could have a proper burial. Laura's son Philip remarked, We are delighted. This is a real breakthrough. This will give my mother so much peace of mind. We will go full steam ahead with the campaign to get him pardoned. The family subsequently reburied Mahmoud in the Muslim section of the Western Cemetery in Cardiff. Finally, they could pay their respects at a marked grave on consecrated land. Part of Mahmoud's tombstone reads, Killed by Injustice. 
Following the reburial, the solicitor for Mahmoud Matan's family, Bernard Demate, made another appeal to Home Secretary Michael Howard for a posthumous pardon. In his letter, he provided the name of a new suspect, Tahir Gass. Gass was a Somali seaman who lived near Lily's store at the time of her murder. Gass had been identified by Harold Cover as standing in the doorway of Lily's store before she was killed. Cover said Gass was the second man he had seen outside the property that night and told the detective about the sighting. However, this information was not passed to Mahmoud's defence team and was never disclosed during the trial. According to police records, Tahir Gass was a very violent man. In 1952, he was convicted of theft, and the following year he was convicted of assaulting a police officer and possessing an offensive weapon. He was known locally as the Crazy Somali, and in 1954 he committed his most violent offence. During his trial for the murder of Granville Jenkins, medical experts testified about what was referred to as a stabbing frenzy and how Gass had suffered from schizophrenia and delusions. He was also described as a man with an unstable nature and was obsessed with knives. To hear Gass was sent to Broadmoor after being declared legally insane, and following his release, he was deported to Somalia. So where are we now? In March 1997, the Home Office announced that Mahmoud Matan's case would be reviewed by the newly formed Criminal Cases Review Commission before it was subsequently agreed that it would be referred to the Court of Appeal. On February 24, 1998, the appeal court judges learned about the new suspect, Tahir Gass. During the proceedings, Harold Cover testified about seeing Gass outside Lily's store and it was even suggested that Kova could have been a plausible suspect as well. Neither of these men were fully investigated. Following a review of the evidence, the appeal judges announced that Mahmoud Matan's conviction would be overturned. At last, after 46 years, Mahmoud's name had been cleared. His widow Laura shared her delight that her grandchildren could now hold their heads up high and not endure the same abuse that her children had. After the decision, Mahmoud's family demanded an apology from the South Wales Police for the investigation into Lily Volpert's murder. Instead of an apology, 
The family were awarded £725,000 in compensation for the wrongful execution of Mahmoud. The compensation was met with mixed emotions. As one of Mahmoud's sons, Mervyn, described how the misery had never left his mother, and never would. He said, For years she had no help. She was on her own. The money means nothing compared to the suffering she has been through. Mahmoud's family attempted to get the case reopened so that justice could be served for both Mahmoud and Lily Volpert. However, their attempts were futile, as the South Wales Constabulary announced that a reinvestigation would not be undertaken. The family shared their belief that the authorities simply weren't interested in finding out the truth. Regarding the true killer, Mahmoud's son Omar said, I don't think he'll ever be brought to justice. South Wales police have mentioned they are looking at all miscarriages of justice, but they didn't mention our father's case. In 2003, another tragedy would befall the Matan family. The body of Mahmoud's son Omar was found washed ashore on the northern coast of Scotland. His family said that he had been haunted by his father's fate. Omar's brother Mervyn remarked, I know he never got over it. An inquest returned an open verdict, but his cause of death was consistent with drowning while under the influence of alcohol. On New Year's Day 2008, Mahmoud's widow Laura passed away peacefully at the age of 78 at the Royal Gwent Hospital. She died without ever receiving an apology from the police for how the case was handled. Sadly, four years later, the family were again struck by another tragedy, when on June 26, 2012, Mahmoud and Laura's son Mervyn was found dead surrounded by empty bottles of sherry. His blood alcohol level indicated he was twice the drink drive limit, and a coroner concluded that Mervyn's death was linked to a dependence on alcohol. It wasn't until 2022, after the 70th anniversary of Mahmoud Matan's execution, that the police finally made an apology to the Matan family. Chief Constable Jeremy Vaughan said, This is a case very much of its time. Racism, bias and prejudice would have been prevalent throughout society, including the criminal justice system. There is no doubt that Mahmoud Matan was the victim of a miscarriage of justice as a result of a flawed prosecution, of which policing was clearly a part. 
It is right and proper that an apology is made on behalf of policing for what went so badly wrong in this case 70 years ago, and for the terrible suffering of Mr Matan's family and all those affected by this tragedy for many years. The apology had come too little too late. The only family members left alive to hear it were Mahmoud's grandchildren as his eldest son David had passed away in 2014. His granddaughter Tanya remarked, It's far too late for the people directly affected as they are no longer with us. And still, we are yet to hear the words... I am. We are sorry. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to our patrons for their support. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website. They walk among us podcast.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.